Let us begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you that you are our great high priest, that you intercede for us eternally, that our sins are nothing with you interceding on our behalf, that you cover us with your righteousness. I pray that this time in discussing what you do for us, how you do it for us, and how your word has revealed it to us will be fruitful, it will be edifying, that it will be soul-satisfying. Help us to know you better and to worship you more fully. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, who intercedes for us, the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen. Okay, so does everybody have notes that wants them? Does anyone need notes? Okay, so I'm excited because my little review sheet on the the front page of the notes, I have finally gotten to the end of it. I have finally filled out the whole thing. So uh, just by way of review, again, for five minutes, I want to cover what we have covered in the five previous classes up to this point, Uh, because today we reach the culmination who is, we talk about the great high priest today. So who is the great high priest? Jesus Christ. So we're finally, we're finally getting there. So, um, so how did this all start? Well, it started with God putting the first priest into this world. Who was the first priest? Adam. So Adam and Eve were, were both priests and they were to serve God, but their priestly ministry failed. And they were cast out of the garden, and which really is to say cast out of God's presence and out of his blessing. And priestly activity continues as people communicate with God. We, and again, we see that in Cain and Abel, Seth and Noah, but it reaches a new crescendo with Abraham. And Abraham is promised three things. What are they? Land, descendants, and blessing. And we will see how those three things will come into play later on. And, and how they are to be administered is going to be largely through a priesthood. But Abraham himself, though functioning as a priest, is going to meet a priest who is greater than he is. And who is that? Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's priesthood is is a mysterious one, but it's a very, very important one. And one that we are going to see resonating throughout the Old Testament and culminating in Christ. One of its distinctives is that it is a royal priesthood. It is a combination of priest and king. And don't forget, Christ himself is prophet, priest, and king. So Melchizedek is foreshadowing that priesthood. And we see his priesthood continue in Jethro, who is the father-in-law of Moses. And he, and again, there are, and we talked about it in class, there are 
structural and language pointers in Exodus and in Genesis that connect, strongly connect, Melchizedek and Jethro. We see that in the course of events, their roles in the events, and also the language that they use, their blessings. Melchizedek of Abraham, Jethro of Moses are nearly identical. And when that happens in the Bible, that's not an accident. Okay? Those things are similar to point us to things to understand. And so Jethro trains Moses and prepares him in his priesthood, but Moses, though a Levite, is not one of the Levitical priests. And again, the pointers are there showing that Moses is functioning in that Melchizedekian mold. He is, in a sense, a king priest. But through Moses, God's people get what? The law. And the law is going to govern their life for centuries until Christ comes. And under the law, who are the priests? What? The Levites. And not really not just the Levites, specifically who are the priests? Yeah, the descendants of Aaron. So all priests are, excuse me, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. So the vast majority of the Levites are there to serve the descendants of Aaron in their priestly tasks. So they're going to be doing the grunt work, in effect. They're going to set up the tabernacle. They're going to guard the tabernacle. They're going to kind of be the, the mater, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, concierge, you know, when people bring things, they're there to receive them. I mean, but that's the word I'm looking for. I think it's concierge. Anyway, so the Levites are doing a lot of the hard work, but the, the priests themselves, the descendants of Aaron, what are they doing? They are making sacrifices. They are offering the blessings of the peop- to the people. They are the ones who are mediating between God and his people. They are the ones through whom God's people are obtaining forgiveness from God. Was that God's first plan? No. Who, were, who did God intend to be the priests initially as they left Egypt. The firstborn, and we see that in Exodus 13, the Passover is instituted under that priesthood, but that priesthood is very quickly going to go astray. What happened? Where? At Sinai, when they do what? The golden calf. So just as just as God is making this covenant with Moses, he's up on Sinai, preparing, you know, making the covenant. Aaron himself is named as the high priest. While Aaron is being named as high priest, he's down there building a, an idol. So as, as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron is busying himself with violating the first two. So it's... Uh, sorry. I'm going to turn this off before it becomes too late. Okay, sorry about that. Um, The perils of modern life. Uh, I lost my train of thought, too. Oh, yeah. So Moses, because of the sin 
at, at Sinai, Moses, uh, God is going to reject the priesthood of the firstborn. And who stays loyal to him at the golden calf? But the Levites. And so God is going, because of their service to him, and service is a distinctly priestly word, because of their service to him, he is going to retain them as his new priesthood. However, it is a priesthood that is inherently concessive. God is, is giving them, because of their sin, a lesser priesthood. How do we know it's lesser? Well, right off the bat, Aaron himself is a concession by God. When Moses is, conf- is, is being confronted by God at the burning bush, five times he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. And five times Moses comes up with some stupid excuse why he's not going to do that. And it says that God's wrath was kindled against Moses. That is not something that we should take lightly. And so God finally relents and says, fine, take Aaron. And so Aaron is a figure of failure and concession from the get-go. The indicators are all there that his priesthood is one that is going to fail. It is inherently going to fail. What priesthood is not going to fail? Jesus is, and he is a priest how? He's not a Levite, is he? In the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to start pulling it all together. And so we first see the inklings of this then in the books of Samuel. And who, especially particularly in 2 Samuel, who steps forward to be the new priest of the people, a different kind of priest. Talked about this last week. David. David himself is going to fulfill that priestly, high priestly role. And we see that throughout his reign as he, when he captures Jerusalem, he makes himself the king of Jerusalem. I mean, he's the king of Israel and he makes Jerusalem his capital. Who was the first king of Jerusalem that we read in the Bible? Melchizedek. And so Christ is, is taking on that pre Christ. David. Christ will too, but I'm not there yet. David is taking on that priesthood of Melchizedek, and on that basis, he makes radical changes in the religious life of God's people. No longer is God's presence in the tabernacle that had been built by Moses... David's going to take the ark and he is going to take it into Jerusalem. And what's the ark? It's the symbol of what is it? God's presence. He's going to take the ark into Jerusalem up to the top of the city, which is a hill, and he is going to put it into a tabernacle that David made and David erected. Now, whose responsibility would that normally be? The Levites. But David is doing all of it. On what basis is David doing all of these things? There's nothing in the law that makes provision for this. And yet David is doing it. And when you read about it, 
everyone's going along with it pretty splendidly. So it's he is doing this on the basis of his being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's no Levite. And then we see this. We see him uh, go into the city. He ascends the mountain, in effect, by going into the city. And then he talks to God. He goes into the tent, and he sits before the ark, and he talks to God. Who else does that? Moses does. So David is doing things that up to this point only Moses has done. And, this, and then who was the last person that God had made a covenant with before David? It was Moses. When, God, when, he, when, when Moses sat in the presence of God before the ark, or even before the ark was made, God makes a covenant with Moses. David is going to do the same thing. And David's covenant is going to promise that one of his descendants will sit on his throne forever. It's what we call the Davidic covenant. And so who is ultimately going to sit on David's throne? Jesus is. And we see that priesthood of David repeated in other kings. So what, which two kings were, were, do we especially see that repeated in? Hezekiah and Josiah. Hezekiah in particular. I mean, he, is, he has a profound priesthood, priestly ministry to the people of Israel. We talked about that last week too. And then Judah is conquered by Babylon. God's people are exiled. But when they return... They see glimpses through the prophets of a coming high priest who is going to unite the office of king and unite the office of high priest into one person. We see that in Zechariah 6. And so the Old Testament is going to end with images of these. There's also going to the real end of the Old Testament in Malachi we're going to see a, an image of the cleansing of the Levitical priesthood. I mean, like, where they are going to be purified like everybody else. And we'll pick up there in a little bit because that's where the Gospels are going to pick up. So that's been the rundown of the last five classes. And all of that has been looking forward to the high priesthood of Christ. So today, we're going to finally talk about what all of this has been leading up towards. And after this, after Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about what that means for us in the present age. So it's going to kind of bring it back to us on a personal level. On that note, either... I'll just talk about it now. Uh, Does anyone want a class next week before Thanksgiving. Because if we all want to do it, I'm happy to be here. If we want to take a week off, we'll pick up after Thanksgiving. But there's a reason why I ask now, because it will have some bearing on what we talk about. Anyone have a thought? If there's no thoughts, there's not going to be a class next week. 
Yeah, okay, good. I have no idea. So, uh, Alistair, one, I, we talked about it and I said I'd put it to the class. And so, okay, I guess there's no class next week. We'll pick up after Thanksgiving. Okay, moving on. So, uh, if you will then, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 5. Before we dig into that, does anyone have any questions about what I just blasted through it? Ludicrous speed. Yes. I. Th- you mean did 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 had God conceded to have Aaron along? Okay, so Aaron is a concession to Abraham before God institutes the priesthood of the firstborn, but. That it, but Aaron himself is a con, a creature of concession. His his accompanying before Aaron's priesthood begins. It doesn't begin until later in Exodus. But Aaron's presence and involvement in all of these things, from his introduction in Exodus four, I think, are all a concession by God. So. If Moses had done what God had told him to do, he would never have had Aaron along for the ride anyway. And who knows what would have happened at Sinai without Aaron there, in effect, leading the people in apostasy. So, I mean, we don't know, but his, his presence is a concession from the get-go. No. No. So, um, okay. Any, go ahead. No, not at all. I mean, so I'll backtrack a little bit and say Saul was definitely not. Saul abdicated that responsibility. David was the first one, but we see of all the good priests of Judah, Israel, and then the divided kingdom of Judah, all of the good kings do priestly activities. They all do. And there were five things that we could identify, that things that we see the kings doing that are priestly in nature. Blessing, offering sacrifices, um, building the altar, there's a few other, uh, covenant renewal, all of that kind of thing. The only kings that we see doing all five of those are David and Hezekiah. Solomon does four of them. Josiah does four of them. All the others do one, two, or three of them. So you can kind of gauge the quality of their priesthood on their activity. But the only ones I say who are perfect, and I don't mean perfect in a sinless way, but you know, in a comp- really complete way, were David and Hezekiah. But all of them, the good ones, did things. But the fact that we see the kings functioning as priests, the good kings, really shows the bankruptcy of the bad kings because Ahaz was functioning as a priest of Baal, 
you know, I mean, it, it just makes what he's called to the same high priesthood that David and Hezekiah were. But he doesn't just fail in performing those duties. He succeeds in going in the opposite direction. He's just that much worse. So I think that's why you see Ahaz often referred to as the worst of the kings, even though a lot of the things that Ahab did were worse than what Ahaz did. The expectation for Ahab was not to serve as the high priest of his people, you know, in, in the way that that the kings in the line of David are expected to. And so Ahaz is going to completely abdicate that. Does that answer your... Okay. Okay. Moving on then. And let me just say here at the outset that I'm going to talk about Hebrews, but it's going to be the short, short version because we could spend forever... How long were you in Hebrews, Hoyt? Three years? <laughs> so we could spend a long time in Hebrews, and I don't have that much time, especially because I really want to talk about tonight is the priesthood of Christ as we see it in the Gospels, which we don't think of that as being a, a priestly uh, depiction of Christ, but on it, it, it's true. The Gospels are actually loaded with priestly imagery of, of Christ. And so that's really where I want to camp tonight. But there is no way we can talk about Christ as the great high priest without starting in Hebrews. So let's start in Hebrews. And Hebrews 5 is a good place to begin. 5 verses 5 through 10 is really kind of setting out the thesis of the whole central part of the book of Hebrews. Uh, so also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming high priest, but the one who glorified him was God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have fathered you. As also in another place, God says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And during his earthly life, Christ offered both requests and supplications with loud cries and tears, to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devotion. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the, through the things he suffered. And by being perfected in this way, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he was designated by God as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, a lot of that is quoting Psalm 110, which we talked about last week. Who wrote Psalm 110? David did. And in it, David is looking forward, saying, the Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, who the way it's structured is, God, it's basically saying, God said to my king. David is saying this, that God is speaking to David's king in the future. Who is David's king? Jesus, and Jesus was the one that was promised by God would sit on his throne forever. So a future, so from David's perspective, a future descendant of his is going to be given divine, royal, and priestly authority. And is going to be given such on the basis that he is a, as it says, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
So he is following in David's footsteps in that priestly order. So that's setting the tone. And then chapters 7 through 9 of Hebrews is really the meat of what's going on. And in a lot of ways, the book of Hebrews is really the the conclusion or the, the filter, I should say, through which we should interpret the whole Old Testament. It's just, it's the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. And who wrote Hebrews? What? Maybe Paul. I'm personally in the Barnabas camp. I, and I would even go so far as to say Barnabas and Apollos. But Barnabas was the, the senior player in this. And why do I bring this up now? What tribe was Barnabas from? No. Barnabas is a Levite. He is of the tribe that serves in and around the temple. He is more acquainted with the priesthood as a Levite than somebody from any of the other tribes. And so Barnabas, it just seems to me, now I'm not saying you don't build doctrine out of silence. And if Hebrews doesn't say who wrote it, I'm not going to say conclusively who wrote it. But I'm just, I'm positing it is my opinion that Barnabas was involved in its authorship in part because as a Levite, he is concerned deeply with the priesthood and that is the meat of the book. And it, it certainly has a Paul, a Pauline flavor to it. But I think that that would be easily picked up through his association and traveling discussions with Paul. But the, the priestly uh, dedication of the book, it, it, to me, lends some credence to the fact that it was Barnabas who was at least involved in its authorship. There's some clues that, that would point us to the fact that it had two authors, but that's a whole other conversation. My point is, the book is devoted to the priesthood, and chapters 7 through 9 are the meat of that. And so the author has a movement then that begins in chapter 7 that shows that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. How does he make that case? He makes the case in part because Aaron and all the priests who are descended from him were present in the loins of Abraham, and Abraham himself supplicates and offers tithe to Melchizedek. So Abraham, himself a priest, is recognizing the superiority of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews is making the case that Christ's priesthood in following in the order of Melchizedek is a priesthood that is inherently superior and was from the very beginning in Genesis 14, was a superior priesthood to the priesthood of Aaron that follows it. Okay? And then he goes on to, in chapter 8, make the case that the covenant that is mediated by this priesthood is a covenant that is superior 
to the covenant that was made with Moses. What is that covenant? You look like you want to say something. That's the old covenant. So look at uh, Jeremiah 31. This is what we refer to as the new covenant. 31, uh, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I, and keep in mind, when it says Lord, is it all in caps? Yes, that means in the Hebrew it says Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenantal, it's his name, and he, it's, it is the, the term that he goes by in covenantal activity too. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. <clears throat> For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, They will be, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each, of, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So there in the verse 31, it says, I will make a new covenant. That's the covenant that Christ is inaugurating with the Last Supper. When he takes the wine, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. He's looking back at Jeremiah 31. And you compare that with Ezekiel 26, which says that God will put into his people a living heart rather than a stone or dead heart. And that his laws will be written on their hearts. And it's interesting that this covenant is one... Well, anyway, I don't want to get into that, actually. You can read it in the notes. So this is the covenant that Christ, as high priest, is now mediating. And then chapter 9 of Hebrews outlines how Christ, as high priest, is making the perfect and final sacrifice. Who makes the sacrifices under the old order? The priests do. You know, the Levites that aren't descendants of Aaron don't get to do it. The tribe of Ephraim doesn't get to do it. The tribe of Issachar, Zebulun, so on and so forth, they don't do that. The sacrifices are the task of the priests. And so now Christ as the high priest is making the final eternal, great sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, once for all. And then Hebrews 10 finishes this whole movement and 
makes the case that this new sacrifice is a superior sacrifice to the old one, to the old sacrifices of animals. An animal cannot pay eternally for the sins, but Christ and his sacrifice can pay eternally for the sins of the people. So the old sacrifices were looking forward in faith to the work that Christ was going to do on the cross. And that's really, were you raising your hand? Oh, okay. That's really the thrust of the book of Hebrews. It's making the case that all of these priestly things that have filled the Old Testament, of which we have talked about many, and there's more that we haven't talked about, Christ is the fulfillment, the culmination of all of these things. He is the last great high priest. Is he the last priest, though? No. He calls us all to be priests. So he is the first of the last order of priests, but there will be others. I pray that each one of us are going to follow in that. Okay, so that's like the short, that's not even like the Cliff Notes version of, of Hebrews. It, that's just, hey, go read it because it talks about these things. What I really want to talk about tonight now is is the priestly indicators of Christ that we see in the Gospels. And this is, this is actually, to me, a really helpful study because it, give, it gives context to a lot of the things that we see happening in the Gospels that, you know, sometimes we're just kind of like, uh, yeah, I don't know what that's all about. Or, you know, things that are done and said, but on what basis are they done and said? Well, this gives us foundation to understand what is going on. So, so let's, let's look at these. I've, I've highlighted uh, I don't know. I, I think I highlighted five or six things that, and there's a lot more than that, but five or six things that happen in the, in the Gospels that are going to give us indications of Christ's priestly activity. One is his birth. Two is his baptism. Uh, three is the wilderness temptation. Four is his, just his entire uh, ministry of forgiveness. And five is the transfiguration. That's kind of a big one. Okay, so let's talk about these. Any questions before I begin? Okay, let's go. Okay, so the book that you will want to turn to right now is, let's turn to Luke. And Luke begins, okay. Luke begins with one of the two accounts of Jesus' birth. But before we get to his birth, there is an account of who else is, is coming. John the Baptist. Okay, what tribe was John the Baptist from? Yeah, both his parents were Levites. So I'm not sure how that connects Elizabeth, his mother, to Mary. 
So either in somewhere in Elizabeth's line, there's Judah, there's somebody from the tribe of Judah that connects to Mary, or somewhere in Mary's line, there's a Levite. And they do, you know, intermarry. For example, Hezekiah, the good, the great king Hezekiah, was obviously of the house of David, but his mother was the daughter of the high priest. She was a Levite. So there is for lack of a less dainty word, I will say cross-pollination between the tribes. Um, what was that? <laughs> for my choice of words? <laughs> yes. So, I don't think they're that, I don't know how closely related they are, but Anyway, the point is, John is a Levite on both sides of his family. And so there's six things that we can see in the story of John's birth that are going to give us clues of a priestly emphasis in Luke. So, and before I even go into those, how much of Luke, the early chapters of Luke, is revolved around the temple. I mean, you have John's parent, John's dad in the temple. You have Mary and Joseph taking Christ into the temple when he's a baby to be dedicated. You have Christ himself hanging out there teaching when he's a young boy. But who is in the temple? Who's working in there? That's the domain of the priests. So the, the temple plays a significant role in all of these early stories in Luke. But what do we see in the story of John? Okay, his father is a priest. His mother is a Levite. His mother's name is Elizabeth, which is essentially the same name as who else's wife? Aaron's wife. So Aaron's wife and John the Baptist's mother have the same name. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is named after whom? The prophet, Zechariah. And what do we see foretold in Zechariah? But the coming of a priest king. Zechariah 6, a shiny, shimmering, glowing priest king, one who is going to unite the authority of the priests and the king in one glowing person. So Zechariah's name is pointing us to that. But there's more. Elizabeth, is she able to have kids? No. But... Who else wasn't able to have kids in the Old Testament besides Sarah? Who else was a Levite that couldn't have children? Hannah. Hannah couldn't have children. She prayed, and who was conceived? Samuel. Okay. And Samuel is the priest who is going to pave the way for whom? David. 
So Samuel the Levite, the son of a Levite woman who couldn't bear children, is going to pave the way for the coming of the royal priest king. Just as John the Baptist, the Levite, the son of a Levite woman who couldn't have children, is going to pave the way for the coming of the royal priest king. You see the parallels? What John has done in the what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. And so Samuel is actually a forerunner of John the Baptist. So moreover, Luke 1, 16 and 17 reference Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which is really at the, the very, these are like almost the last verses of the Old Testament. And those, are, those, those verses in Malachi are referenced in Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17. It says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's turn to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6. These are literally the last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet... Now, notice Elijah was just mentioned in Luke. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome. Hold on. The great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So you have. The claim being made that John is going to do what is being foretold of at the end of Malachi. So the last verses of the last book of the Old Testament are foretelling the coming of one who is going to do the work of John the Baptist. And there at the beginning of Luke, those verses at the end of Malachi are being referenced as John is coming. And John himself is a priestly figure. He is a Levite. He is the son of a priest. He's the son of a Levite, his mother. And he is a fulfillment of what Samuel was. In Malachi, it talks about a purification of the Levites. And Samuel brought that about. What was, what was Samuel's, what did he do at the beginning of his ministry? Who was the priest? Eli. And Eli had corrupt sons. And Samuel came in and did away with the house of Eli and purified the priesthood in Israel. You see the parallels? So all of that stuff at the beginning of 1 Samuel is all pointing to John the Baptist, who is pointing to who? Christ. Okay, moving on. Uh, 
The connections to Luke's account continue in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 as they foretell that coming shift in the priesthood. So Mary's song mirrors Hannah's song. Both Samuel and John are said to be strong in the spirit. And like I just mentioned, Samuel cuts off the old line of priests to prepare the way for the priest king. So Eli had a stranglehold on the religious observance of the nation. Samuel will come and cut him off and prepare the way for David, who is the priest king, just as John the Baptist is going to do the same thing. And then, lastly, just in terms of things that are in talking about Christ's birth that are related to the priesthood, the gifts of the three wise men are all pointing to the, uh, the coming of the royal priest king. The gold is a gift to a king, but the frankincense and the myrrh are both mentioned in the law for temple activity. The frankincense is intended to be an incense offering. It's intended to be burned before the ark as an offering to God. And the myrrh is the main ingredient in the anointing oil that was to be made to anoint the priests. So all three of those things are looking forward to the coming of the royal priest king. Does that make sense? Okay, so what my point is in all of this is when Christ is born at the beginning of his, minist- of his life, there is a built-in recognition of his priestly activity. We see that priestly activity gloriously expounded in Hebrews, but it's present here in the Gospels. So let's look to the next thing that is an important priestly event in Christ's life, and that is his baptism. So the baptism of Jesus is important for a lot of reasons, but one of them is it's the inauguration of his priestly ministry. This is when it begins. How do we know this? Well, he's baptized. So what is that? Well, baptism means a lot of different things, and we've talked about some of that before. Baptism is intended to represent being buried with, along with Christ and being resurrected along with him as you're drawn out of the water. And Egypt, the, the exodus from the Egypt, the passage through the Red Sea is also intended to be a picture of baptism. But that's one thing that baptism is. But in this case, it's also, it's not that or this, it's all of these things. But in this case, baptism is also a washing for purification. Who is washed for purification? The law is very concerned with washing, is it not? You have to be ritually clean. Okay, all the washings in the law are self-administered. I mean, you're washing yourself and all this kind of thing. Except you don't knock off your microphone. The only washing in the law that is administered by others 
is the washing of the priests when they begin their priestly service. They are to be dipped by other priests. They are, in a sense, to be baptized by other priests. And you can see that in Exodus 29.4, Exodus 40.12, and Leviticus 8.6. It describes, it doesn't just describe the call for that to be done in the law. It describes Moses doing that for Aaron and his sons, baptizing them in effect, washing them. So Christ being baptized is in effect a washing that is inaugurating his earthly priesthood. But there's more. Um, what happens when Christ is baptized? It's a kind of significant event. What? Yeah. Okay. How significant is this? This is one of the very, very few events that is mentioned in all four Gospels. So, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of commonality, but 96% of the Gospel of John is unique only to the Gospel of John. Very few things in it. Basically, this and the crucifixion are essentially the only things that are shared between John and the other three Gospels. So, it's kind of a significant event. Clouds part. The voice says, what? Yes, and then what comes down from heaven? The Holy Spirit. So what do you have present in this event? The Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are all present at the inauguration of his priesthood. But you also have deep Old Testament references being built in here. So that quote, you are my dear son, In you I take great delight, or in whom I am well pleased. A more literal way to translate that from the Greek is, You are my son, the beloved one, in whom I am well pleased. And all three of those statements come directly out of three very important passages in the Old Testament. So, You are my my son comes from Psalm 2-7. That is, you are my son whom I have begotten. The beloved one is actually the term used to refer to Isaac in chapter 22 of Genesis. What happens in chapter 22 of Genesis? That's where uh, Abraham is called to go sacrifice Isaac. God says, take your son, the beloved one, and sacrifice him. That's literally what it says. And then, in whom I am well pleased is a reference to the suffering servant of Isaiah. So you string those all together, and it's saying he is the son who is to be offered as a sacrifice for his people. Sacrifices are inherently priestly activities. So this statement by the Father regarding Christ is a statement at his, the inauguration of his priesthood. 
is a recognition that not only is he the priest, but he is also the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the suffering servant who will be sacrificed for the sins of his people. So right there at the beginning of his ministry, it is recognized where this is all going to go. Okay. Lastly, in Luke 3.23, it says that Christ was 30 years old at this time. And when it says that, it is immediately, there is nothing separating it from Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus. When things are in proximity, you take that at face value. Okay? So when Jesus is baptized, he was about 30 years old. Well, what's important about that age? Well, in Numbers 4.3, it says that a priest begins his service at 30 years old. So it's pretty straightforward what's going on here. I mean, why would Luke mention his age at that point? I mean, is it to satisfy our curiosity or to make an important point theologically? You know, the Bible isn't written to satisfy our curiosity. It's written to communicate truth about God. So we could wonder how old Jesus was all day long, and it wouldn't matter. But it matters because the age has meaning. And the meaning is he is beginning his duties as a priest. Okay, any questions? No? Am I losing you guys? I hope not. doesn't say so it's just you know the law is the law i mean god has his reasons for making these things the way they are but this is one where there is no explanation given it's just 30 is the age yeah yeah it's like you kind of let go the last vestiges of youth and begin the fullness of your adulthood so um, that's speculation as to why, but I think that's solid. Okay, so the next thing that happens, and I just gave it a really quick reference, is that immediately after his baptism, what happens to Christ? He's driven out into the wilderness. So, I mean, Mark and Ma- or Luke and Matthew say that the Spirit guided him to the wilderness, In Mark, it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. But what happens while he's out there? He gets tempted by whom? Yeah. Who was the first person tempted by Satan? What? Yeah, Adam. Adam and Eve. And their temptation and failure in their temptation was an inherently priestly Failure. They were to guard the garden. That's what it says. Did they guard it? No, they let Satan slip in. They accepted his lies. So Christ's now been inaugurated as a priest. He's driven out in the wilderness to test his priesthood, and he succeeds. So, moving on then to his ministry, 
and I'll I'll kind of cruise through this one fast because I really want to stop at the transfiguration. I, that's that's the one that really gets me. So so Christ's ministry again is an inherently priestly ministry. He's not functioning as king at this point. There is elements of you know being a, a prophet. But really what he's doing is, is priestly work. Okay? Now, I could have picked many, many, many things to look at that depict this. So I had to pick one just for the sake of an example. So I, I picked Mark 2, 1 through 12. Um, and there were a lot of reasons why I picked that. Some, it's, it's one that gets a lot written about it in terms of his priestly activity, so it was an easy one to, to go to. Um, but that's, that's where, uh, you know, Christ is going to heal the, the paralytic who's lowered down into the room. And, it, you know, so the paralytic is, is lowered in, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven who has the power to forgive the people under the law the priests do and that's really really clear you see that in Leviticus 420 4:26 4:31 4:35 5:13 5:16 5:18 5:26 it's pretty clear that the role of the priest is to offer God's forgiveness to the people. So when Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven, he is doing something that is very, very priestly in nature. However, the question is then asked, on what authority are you doing this? And it's on his own authority. And you can go into that. You look at Daniel 7, especially 7, 13, and 14, where you see a a royal priest figure being depicted who is referred to as the Son of Man. And so Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he's looking back to Daniel 7. But his whole ministry is one of priestly forgiveness. What else is he doing during his ministry? What kind of miracles is he working? Most of his miracles are healing. What is he doing when he's healing? He is making something unclean clean. That's the work of a priest. That's the work of a high priest who is making all these wretched, redeemed sinners who are unclean, clean. So all of these miracles that he's doing are prefiguring his ultimate purification of sinners. Just like Hezekiah, when the people were eating the Passover, but they were unclean, because there weren't enough priests to clean them, to sanctify them, 
the great high priest, Hezekiah, says, Lord, please pardon these people who are seeking you in their hearts, but are unclean. And what's the response that God has for them? He heard Hezekiah's prayer and heals the people. So Hezekiah in that action is foreshadowing the coming healings that Christ is going to do. His healings are prefiguring his ultimate healing mission, which is to heal sin, to make to defeat sin. Any questions? Okay, last one. Last page. Has anyone ever thought the transfiguration was mysterious? I always have. But if you understand it in a priestly context, it actually makes a lot more sense. So, it says in Mark, again, this is something you see in two of the other Gospels. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them high up on a mountain, up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good we are here. Let us make three tents, or three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, this whole event has significant priestly overtones. So first off, it's all looking back to Exodus 24, 16 through 18. This is when Moses goes up on the mountain. It says, The glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. What does it say at the beginning of that passage from Mark? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So there's... There's a parallel connecting Moses in Exodus 24, 16, and 18 to what's going on in the transfiguration. But there's more. Exodus 28 describes the shiny priestly robes that the high priest is supposed to wear. So the the high priest is supposed to be absolutely radiant. 
Okay, who else was a priest that was radiant? Talked about it last week. Moses was. So the high priest is supposed to wear garments that are looking back to the radiance that Moses was reflecting. How did he get that radiance? What? Yeah, he saw God, or at least out of the corner of his eye saw the, the hindquarters of God. But that was enough to make Moses absolutely terrifyingly glowing. And the high priest is supposed to be in these glowing white and gold clothing, is supposed to be looking back to that. So you have, ex, you have Moses going up on the mountain on the sixth day. You have the radiant clothing of the high priest. You also have uh, why Moses and Elijah? Why are they there? Because they're the only two men that saw God in the Old Testament. I mean, not talking about Adam, but were there and had an epiphany where they saw God. We don't think about Elijah having experienced that, but if you look at 1 Kings 19, he goes up on the mountain, he's in a cave. Remember, Moses was in the cleft in a rock. And Elijah's in the cave, and there's fire and clouds. And it says, first there was fire, but God was not in the fire. And then there were rocks falling all over the place, but God was not in the rocks. And it goes through that. And then there's a whisper, and God is in the whisper. So unlike the first encounter with God that Moses has in Exodus 34, Elijah's encounter is very similar, but he sees God in a more subtle way. But the point is, they're the only two guys that go up on a mountain and encounter God in that fashion. And here you have Christ going up on the mountain, and the two guys that encountered him face to face, so encountered God face to face, show up, and Christ begins to glow and radiate the way Moses did, but even more so. It's like Moses was a reflection. The high priest in their clothes is an even fainter reflection, but Christ, it's, etern it's internal. He has that, that glory within himself. And what does it say at the beginning of Hebrews? He's, he's the radiance of the glory of God. So the high priests are supposed to be looking back to this event, I mean to the event with Moses, and Moses' encounter with God is a foreshadowing of this event, where the presence of God is already there in Christ. He's really revealing everything that he is as the great glowing royal high priest. So he is the fulfillment of the high priests putting on their white clothes and their gold and all that kind of stuff. They're looking forward to the transfiguration. And that is a glimpse of the, what he is now. 
And it's ironic that Peter says, well, let's build tabernacles. Because tabernacles are what the, the presence of God is to be housed in, the tabernacle. But is that necessary? Christ is the tabernacle. And the next class I teach is going to be on the temple. And where talked about the priests. Where are the priests serving? In the, temp, in the tabernacle, in the temple. We're going to talk about all the symbolism that that has and how all of that even is pointing towards Christ. So that'll be at the end, though, in a, in, after my dad's going to be teach the next two classes on 1 Peter 2.9, what it means for us now to be royal priests, to be his royal priesthood. So all of this talk about priests, we're not just talking about it for the fun of it. I mean, it's good for us to know. It's good for us to be able to understand what Scripture is saying. It's good for us to understand what Christ is doing on our behalf. It's also good for us to know how we fit into that. We're not just the recipients of his priestly ministry. We're to take it up and follow in his footsteps. So it says, Peter says that we are to be royal priests. So we're going to talk about that for a couple weeks and what that means. Yes. There are things that they point to, but I think they are bad interpretations. There's a lot, you see, but the problem with the Catholic Church is that the Bible is not their authority. So the, the Catholic Church, what's, what's our final authority? The Word of God. And in the, the Orthodox Church, they have two f- places of authority. And they're parallel. Each is equally important. There's tradition and there's the Bible. And so we have just the Bible, just the Word of God. They have tradition equally important with the Bible. The Catholic Church has the Bible and tradition. And over them is the magisterium, which is the Pope and the Cardinals. And only they have the authority to interpret tradition and the Bible. So they are able to make claims that are not in the Bible the way we make our claims solely on what it says in the Bible. Does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Well, they won't deny that he's the high priest. I mean, that the Catholic priesthood is not a high priesthood. No. Well, not in, the, not in the theological sense that it's talking about in Hebrews. Let's put it that way. But he does have the title Pontifex Maximus, which, you know, was an old pagan Roman title that was dropped during the reign of Gradianus in the... 380, 380s, and the popes picked it up and claimed it for themselves. That's another story, though. It's a little outside of what we're talking about tonight. That's okay. Um, yes. Sure. 
Zechariah 6. It's talking about the, the crowning of the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 6 is looking forward to the coming great high priest, the royal high priest. I think there is. I don't think it's necessarily through the, to the transfiguration itself. I mean, I think it is, I think the transfiguration is a, for lack of a better word, an indicator of what it's looking forward to. So God's glory is consuming. It's, it's just, it's burning out of him. Moses couldn't look upon it except in a crack with God's hand over it and only out of the corner of his eye as God had passed by and yet that made Moses radiant. So that, the contact with, with God made him like that. A few chapters later in Exodus 28, God gives the instructions for what the high priest is to wear, which is to be radiant in white, bleached white and gold. And it's looking back to that and looking forward then to what's coming. And Zechariah 6 is important because A, I mean, what's, what's the, the high priest's name? Joshua. Who else? What other high priest is named Joshua? Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the Latin form of the Greek form of Yeshua in Hebrew. So Jesus in Hebrew would be Yeshua. So, you know, there's... So, the Yeshua high priest in Daniel, or, sorry, in Zechariah, he's being... he's. He's being crowned. So it's a, it's, a, it's a returning to the priestly authority and the kingly authority being combined into one person. But his, that happening is really just an image of looking forward to the, the great Yeshua who will combine the priestly and kingly authority. That's one. I don't know the answer to that completely, but I would say at least in part, that's probably an element of it, but I think it's probably greater than that. So, you know, it, as with many things, it's a both and. I mean, there's layers to it, so I think it's, that's a layer, but I don't think it's the layer. So... after I turn off the mic. <laughs> so, cause I am out of time and there are kids lurking. So I'm sorry, I can, I'll talk about it, but I gotta be done now. Um, okay, any other questions really quick? No, okay, no meeting next week, but then after Thanksgiving, we'll be back. Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for all the people here who are seeking after you, that we, we all desire to know you, to worship you, to proclaim you. 
I pray that you will empower us with your spirit to be your royal priesthood, to go out and to preach your forgiveness and your intercession, the mediation that you offer us to those who don't know you, to those who are still bound to sin, who are your enemies. I pray that we will be an effective priesthood for you, for your kingdom. We ask all of this in the name of your son, the great high priest. Amen.